Return to the Word is made possible by faithful supporters like you. Find out more at returntotheword.com. Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. August 3rd of this year, Patrick Cruzius began opening fire at a Walmart in El Paso, Texas. The last count that I saw in the news was 20 people were killed and 26 more had been injured. Less than 14 hours later, at least nine people were killed and more than two dozen were wounded when a shooter opened fire in downtown Dayton, Ohio. August 31st, Midland in Odessa, Texas, after being fired from a job, Seth Aaron Adder shot and killed seven people. And then just a few days ago, September 3rd in Elkmont, Alabama, a 14-year-old shot and killed his entire family. I don't think I have to tell you this morning that these are tragic events, but I'm not so certain that they should surprise us because, you see, I believe it is the sin nature of man that even some of the most compassionate and nicest people that you will ever meet on this planet have the ability to commit murder. David Buss of the University of Texas, he put this to the test. He asked his students if they had ever seriously thought about killing someone. Seriously, if they had plotted it out and thought it through. And if they had, he asked them to just write it out in an essay. But what David found, it took him aback because what he found was that 91% of the men and 84% of the women had detailed thoughts, planned it out about killing someone. And he was even more troubled to find how many steps some of his students had taken toward carrying out their plans. One young woman invited an abusive ex-boyfriend to a dinner with thoughts of stabbing him in the chest all throughout dinner. A young man in a fit of road rage pulled a baseball bat out of his trunk and he would have just pummeled his opponent if he hadn't run away. Another young man planned the detailed progression of murder, crushing a former friend's fingers, puncturing his lungs, and then killing him. Now, in case you're sitting here thinking to yourself this morning, well, I'm a little bit better than that. I'm just a notch above that. I don't actually sit there and think about killing someone and and murdering people. Well, let me just suggest to you this morning that hatred comes from the heart, and that is the bigger issue. It was Christ himself who said in Matthew 15, 19, for out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornication, thefts, false witness, and blasphemies. See, this is the heart of all mankind, desperately wicked, depraved beyond all belief. And what we see today in the headline and in the news is we see desperate lost people trying to come up with a way to curb the violence that comes out of the heart. But what they don't even understand is what they are up against is the sin nature of man. And no amount of laws, no amount of legal fixes in this country can fix it. And no amount of laws in the days of Israel could fix the depravity of man. 
because it takes the righteousness of Jesus Christ that comes by faith in the finished work of the cross. It takes the Spirit of God living in us, transforming us day by day, little by little, making us more and more like Jesus Christ himself. So that our thinking actually takes on the mind of Christ because at our core, we are wicked, sinful human beings until Christ steps in and begins to work in us. Now, this is where Paul left us in Galatians 3. Would you join me there where we begin in verse 15? Paul says, Brethren, I speak in the manner of men, though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Paul didn't even want the legalists saying, yes, Abraham was saved by faith, but the Mosaic law came after, and so that somehow changes everything. Paul is now taking the example of a covenant or a will, and he's saying if someone has a last will and testament, it's unchangeable. You just can't change it after the fact, especially after they're dead. It's kind of hard. It makes it a little more difficult. Once it is set by the person who has made it, you can't change it. You have no right to change it. And in the same manner, Paul is arguing God's promises cannot be annulled. Because once he makes an unconditional promise, it stands forever. The Abrahamic covenant is what he's talking about. The Abrahamic covenant of Genesis 12 is an unconditional promise of God. God's promise of salvation by faith to Abraham was not something that was changed by the Mosaic law after, and it was certainly not something that can be changed by men. And so Paul tells us, starting in verse 16, he says, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to your seed who is Christ. And this I say, that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer a promise, but God gave it to Abraham by what? Promise. Did the law change the promise of salvation by faith to Abraham since it came after the legalists were saying, yes, absolutely, it did. Paul says, no, not a chance, no way. I want you to notice here with me that Abraham did not make the covenant with God. Do you see that in the text? Abraham did not make the covenant with God. God made the covenant with Abraham. God didn't put out any conditions for Abraham to meet. He didn't say, you need to do X, Y, and Z, and then this will happen. He just says, this is what is going to happen. Paul is teaching us something here that is very, very powerful. God made this promise not only to Abraham, but also to who? Christ. This is why he says in verse 16, and to your seed who is Christ. The faithful remnant in Israel had always recognized that blessing would ultimately come through a single individual, and that single individual would be the Messiah, Jesus the Christ. You know, there's been a battle taking place since before creation. And the concept of the seed, it goes back to Genesis 3.15, after the fall of man. Remember in Genesis 3, God said there that there would be a conflict in the world between the children of the devil and the children of God. And this is really what we see played out in history. All throughout history, this conflict. Cain versus Abel. Israel versus the nations. John the Baptist and Jesus against the Pharisees. God made his covenant promise with Abraham through Christ. 
Now, if you're tracking with me and you're looking at these 430 years in verse 17 and you're scratching your head a little bit, wondering what Paul is on about and what he's talking about here, I think this refers to the time of the ratification of the covenant to Jacob, Abraham's grandson, while Jacob was on his way to, to Egypt in Genesis 46. Until 430 years later, during the Exodus, when Israel was actually given the law. Again, just pointing out here in the text, a long way of pointing out to us that the Mosaic law was put in place by God long after the message of faith was given to Abraham and ratified to Jacob. God made a promise. God made a promise saying here that God would not uphold this promise for a legalist to come along and say that God was not going to uphold the promise and the covenant to Abraham. That would mean that the very integrity of God was under attack. The very integrity of God was at stake. Faith had made Abraham righteous before God. Faith had made Isaac righteous before God. Faith had made Jacob righteous before God. No strings attached. No keeping of the law was needed. This is the point of verse 18. It was either a promise of God freely given, or it was no longer a promise. Your inheritance comes in Christ. It comes through a promise, not by keeping rules, not by keeping a law. Now, I would actually argue that this is a very important text for a lot of reasons. This is the secret to living the life that God wants you to live without all of the struggle. Depend on the promise, Christian, is what Paul's saying, not on the law. Don't live your life by trying to keep rules in order to earn God's favor, but with the sure and certain knowledge that he already favors you unconditionally. In other words, let your obedience to Jesus Christ come. Hear me on this. Let your obedience to Jesus Christ come, not because you're trying to earn his blessing, but instead with the realization that God has already blessed you. Learn to live a thank you life instead of trying to earn God's grace. God blesses the believer without conditions. You cannot earn his favor. If you're going to enjoy the life that God has called you to live, then you must simply depend on God's unconditional promise. That is what Abraham did. You don't need to work to try to earn something that has already been given to you. We can learn this lesson from Abraham that God will never go back on his word. Now, over in Ephesians 1.3, Paul would tell the church this. He would say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Watch the wording. He says, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ? God has blessed us, Paul says what? Past tense. God has blessed us. It's already done. The moment you come to faith in Christ, God dumps a big dump truck of a whole lot of heavenly blessing upon you is what happens. You're blessed at that moment. So now you live your life not trying to earn those blessings that have just been dumped on you, but in the joy of delight of having already received them freely, knowing that you could never lose them. There's no longer this pressure to perform. There's only the delight of living for someone who accepts you and loves you unconditionally. 
See, God is telling us in his word, this will never change. Nothing you could do, nothing you could say could ever make him love you less. Nothing you do or say could ever make him love you more. If you want to enjoy life as God intended, then live in the light of God's unconditional love. Dr. Joseph Cook, he was a man most of you probably have no idea or never heard of who he is, but he wrestled with some of these same struggles, but he had the courage to actually put down some of his struggles on pen and paper, and he was serving as a missionary, and he ended up leaving the mission field, a very, very broken man. Listen to what he would later write. I invented in my mind an impossible God, and I had a nervous breakdown. God's demands of me were so high and his opinion of me was so low, there was no way for me to live except underneath his frown. All day long, Joseph felt condemned before God. Why don't you pray more? Why don't you witness more? How can you allow yourself to indulge in such evil and wicked thoughts? Do this, Christian. Don't do that. Yield, confess, work harder. Most of all, Joseph wrote, I had a God who down underneath considered me to be less than dirt. Boy, I hope none of you feel that way this morning. Because in Christ, we have been set free from the constraints of the law, not to live for sin. That is not the message. But free and accepted by faith in Christ to live for him liberated from that pressure to perform so you can begin to enjoy that relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. God does not see you as less than dirt. God sees you as one of his children, identified with his son, holy and righteous in Christ himself, as people who are learning to live more for their relationship in Christ instead of the rules of men. But the law did have a purpose, didn't it? I mean, it was given for a reason. The law had a purpose for Israel, as Paul tells us in verse 19. He says, what purpose then does the law serve? Why, why do we have it? He says it was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Remember the simple teaching from last week. Individuals within the nation of Israel in the Old Testament were certainly saved by faith. But for the nation as a whole, the people of Israel, the Mosaic laws showed them as a nation how to fellowship with God, how to worship God as a nation. Now, the church is not Israel. Israel's not the church. The church has never been under the law, never, not once, because we have the Spirit of God and the Word of God to help us govern our lives. We don't need the law. The law revealed the sinfulness of man. Paul said it like this in Romans 7, 7. He said, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. The law reveals God's standard of holiness, right? It shows us our sinfulness. It lets us know that we fall short of the glory of God. It helps us to see our need of a Savior. The law laid down this perfect, holy, righteous standard of God, and it made people aware when they strayed from that perfect path. The law is like a mirror. It reveals the dirt, but you don't wash your face with it. You don't wash your face with it because why? We're cleansed with the blood of Jesus Christ. 
People that are trying to live according to the law, you can spot them a mile away. They pretend to be something that they know they're not. They pretend to be something they know they're not. And the sad thing is, is that many of them live their entire lives trying to persuade everyone that they are good people. When deep down inside, they know it's not true. They know it's not true. That's why Sunday morning is the most hypocritical hour of the week. You see, for a lot of people, the law has revealed their sin, and they don't know what to do with it. They stand amazed at their sin. They don't know what to do. And so they pretend to have no sin, and they come to church with a smile and happy in order to be accepted by others. That's a miserable way to live. That's a terrible way to live your life. But understanding this teaching of grace, it should free us. It should liberate us. We begin to understand the unconditional love of God, the acceptance of God. And so then you can freely admit your sins before him, 1 John 1, 9, without fear of losing his acceptance. Don't live by the law, live by the promise. Notice the wording in verse 19 of Galatians, till the seed should come. This shows right here, the law was temporary. It was never intended to be God's perpetual regulating force for human conduct. It would only serve until Christ came, which is exactly why we read over in Colossians 2.14, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having what? Nailed it to the cross. You see, with the death and resurrection of Christ, the law was done away with, and now its righteous demands are fulfilled in us through the Spirit. And the giving of the law appointed through the angels by the hand of the mediator, this is an interesting thing. Anytime some of these guys in the New Testament would start talking about this with the angels, it gets my interest. Stephen made mention of the angels in Acts 7, didn't he? And so does Hebrews. Deuteronomy 33, 2, it has an interesting little text. Let's read it. It says, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned on them from Seir. He showed forth from Mount Paran, and he came with 10,000 of saints. From his right hand came a fiery law for them. Saints, holy ones, is what it's talking about there in the text. Angels of the Lord. And then again, we read in Psalm 68, verse 17, the chariots of God are 20,000, even thousands of thousands. The Lord is among them as in Sinai, in the holy place. See, the unseen world, all the spiritual battles that are taking place right now, they're not revealed to us. And I think I know why. It's because we worship the creation instead of the creator. We would worship that stuff. But even this, even the angels behind the scene, they all testify of the might and the strength and the power of our God. Now, the mediator of Galatians 3.19, it's Moses. He was the mediator who stood between God and the people and delivered the law to them. But the Abrahamic covenant, it didn't need a mediator because it was a unilateral promise of God. And so verse 20 says this, it says, Now a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, do you notice those words? If there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture has confined all under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Paul is showing that the promise made to Abraham, it didn't need a mediator. Why didn't it need a mediator? Because it came directly from God himself. 
The Mosaic law did not come directly from God. God used his angels, and the angels revealed it to Moses, who gave it to the people. It's easy to lose the point of what Paul is saying here in the text, but let me explain it like this. Esther Schmidt of Ohio, she talks about a time when her daughter-in-law noticed that their little two-year-old was ignoring her food. And she said to her daughter, she said, Carrie, why are you not eating? And Carrie replied, I can't eat. God told me not to. Well, her mother wouldn't have this, and she corrected her. God would not tell you to not eat your supper. So little Carrie, being two, she looked up at the ceiling, and she conceded the point, and then she said, well... Maybe it was Moses. Somehow, hear the point, somehow the law coming through a stuttering prophet like Moses doesn't carry the weight it would as if it came directly from God himself. And besides, if you have a mediator, the very presence of a mediator, it assumes two parties, doesn't it? And that's the idea of verse 20. A mediator stands in the middle of two parties, but God is one. Meaning, when God gave the Abrahamic covenant, it came directly from him. It was unconditional. It didn't depend on man to keep his word. God is immutable. God is unchanging. God will absolutely keep all of his promises. The law had a purpose. The law had come from God. It wasn't working against God, and it wasn't working against his promise. It's just that the problem comes when men, in their misunderstanding of the word of God, they try to put the church back under the law, or when they try to teach that salvation comes through the law. But notice the direct teaching of verse 21. The law, it's unable to give life. You can keep it all day long if you want. It's unable to give life. You see, if the righteousness of God could be earned, if eternal life could be earned, if there's something we could do to just earn it, it would have been by the Mosaic law. Then there would be no need for the gospel. And all we would have to do is just keep a bunch of rules, keep the law. And if we were without sin, we wouldn't need a savior, would we? But salvation cannot be earned. If you work for it, then it's no longer a free gift. See, the scripture the law here has confined all under sin. It puts us on death row, locked up underneath the condemnation of sin. Why? Read the end of verse 22 again with me. That the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Same teaching as Romans 4, 5. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. You know, the challenge of any court system is to deal with some of these things. The law can never really change the heart of man, can it? David Joe White Jr. of Alabama is a perfect example. I wish I would have had this illustration back when our missionaries from Alabama were here this summer. But this, this guy was a perfect illustration of this. He had sat there in the courtroom. He just pled guilty to 42 charges of burglary. 42 charges. But then he was rearrested after swiping his lawyer's portable recorder from the defense table. See, a law can only tell you how to live, but it can't give you the power to overcome the temptations to sin. The promise of life in Christ, it has the power to transform you from the inside out. What the law tried to do by a restraining power from without, the gospel does by an inspiring power from within. 
Living by rules, it will leave you exhausted, frustrated, and ashamed. And there is a better way to life. And so Paul continues down to verse 23 and says, But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we're no longer under a tutor. Let me jump down to verse 24 for a second. And let me just say, it's actually a mistranslation of the text to say that the law was put in place to lead us to Christ. I believe that's a mistranslation. It should be that the law was put into place until Christ came. Then back in verse 23, the definite article is there in the text. Before the faith came. Before the faith came. People had faith in the Old Testament. The reference here ties back to verse 22. It's a reference to the coming of Jesus Christ. When men had the first historical opportunity to put their faith in Jesus the Christ, the crucified and risen Redeemer. Before the Savior came, we were kept under the law. Paul was writing as a Jew, telling the church that before Jesus stepped into history to die upon the cross for our sins, God's people were kept under guard by the law. But this came to an end. It came to a screeching halt. This ended, notice in verse 23, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. You see, the law guarded, the law restrained outwardly until Christ came. Now, the word for tutor refers to a pedagogue. Most people today don't know what that was. In the Roman world, it was of a slave who was in charge of the children from around age 6 or 7 to about 18. Now, this slave would actually train the children, take the child to school each day, saw that he was dressed correctly. He managed a young boy. Most often, the pedagogues protected the kids from all sorts of evil influences, and they demanded complete obedience. Not a schoolmaster in the sense of being a teacher. That wasn't the job. It was about supervising or controlling, disciplining the child. And Paul is saying the law was for the nation of Israel to guard them and train them up until Christ. But the coming of Christ ushered in a new age. For the believers living at the time under the Mosaic law, they were like children who had now grown up and they were no longer under a tutor, their childhood guardian. See, the outward keeping of the Mosaic law had been replaced by the Spirit of God living in us. Mosaic law was like having a strict babysitter threatening you with punishment all the time, every time you misbehave. But in Christ, we're not under the babysitter anymore. Christ treats us like grown children, which is why the rest of the text tells us, starting in verse 26, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Harry Houdini, I've used him as illustrations before. Of course, he was one of the most famous escape artists in history. He claimed he could be locked up in any jail cell in the world and escape within one hour. And one particular time, he was in the British Isles. A small town there had built a brand new jail, and they were so proud of their brand new jail. So they invited Houdini to come and see if he could get out of their brand new jail, if he could get out and escape. 
So he accepted the invitation and when the door was shut, he asked the officers to give him a little bit of privacy. And he always held a special little lock pick that he had designed in his belt. And he removed the pick and he began to work on that lock. But after about 30 minutes, he started getting very, very frustrated, very frustrated. He started to sweat a little bit because he was still trying to pick this lock and he wasn't getting there. An hour went by and he still was not able to unlock the door. And after the officers returned, Houdini actually just collapsed in complete frustration against the prison door and it swung open. The reason he couldn't pick the lock is because it had never been locked in the first place. The door had only been locked in his mind. And that is what we do, believers. You see, we think, we think the door to freedom and happiness can be picked by our own efforts when Jesus has already declared us to be free. In your faith, in your life, in your personal life, you may be sweating, you may be straining at the thought of someday facing a holy God. Maybe you live in fear of the future, even though God has already unlocked the door to freedom through his grace. See, people caught, people caught in the trap of legalism, and it is one of the most common things today in the church, caught in the legalistic traps of, of laws and rules, people caught in legalistic tendencies are scared to death of the freedom that grace brings. People are scared of God's grace. So it gets redefined today. Galatians 3 does not leave us abandoned and rotting away in the prison cell of sin. It reminds us that, hey, you're free. You've been liberated. That our salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ has set us free. The moment you put your faith in Christ, you not only became a child of God, you became his full adult child. Paul is making that point. That's the idea here. God is treating you as his mature, grown-up sons and daughters. Now, those of you this morning that have little children, you know, oh, you know how much work that is. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. It's constant watching them constant watching them. But it does get better, right, mom and dad? It does get better. You see, when your children grow up, it's a wonderful thing to be able to have an adult relationship with them. You don't have to discipline all the time. You don't have to clean up their messes. You don't have to wipe their snotty little noses or keep a constant eye on them wondering what they're doing. Having an adult conversation with your children is a whole different ballgame. You get to be friends with them. And when you see them succeed in life and go off and make a great life for themselves, you get to stand back and be proud of them. And this is how God feels about those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. He is proud of what we've become in Christ. God already accepts us because he already treats us like his own son, Jesus the Christ. That's verse 27 in the text. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. Baptized into Christ. This is not about water baptism here. It's about the act of the Holy Spirit placing the believer into the body of Jesus Christ so that you now share in his life. Literally, the text is you were immersed into Christ. You were submerged into the glory of God, plunged into his righteousness so that you who are before is no longer visible. You see, when God the Father looks at you, Christian, he sees the beauty and the glory of Christ, which means you are fully accepted by God. 
You have put on Christ, meaning regeneration by the Spirit of God. It clothes the believer in Jesus Christ. Now, in the Roman world, when a young man came of age, he went through this very important ceremony. As the young adult, the youth would wear a toga with kind of like a purple hem on it. But once he went through this ceremony of becoming an adult and became a man, he would put off the sign of his childhood and he would take on the pure white toga of being an adult. And that's actually the picture that's being used here in verse 27. When you came to faith in Christ, you put on Christ himself. And God now grants you the rights and responsibilities of being an adult citizen in his future kingdom. He accepts us because we've put on Christ, so quit trying to prove yourself to him. He treats us all the same. He has no favorite son or daughter. Verse 28 is a text that has been brutalized, ripped out of context in its important verse, but it's used out of context to support the political and ideological movements like the radical feminist movement that has gripped our country today. Paul's not talking about roles in the church. He's not talking about roles in the family. He's not doing away with the distinctions between a man or a woman. Paul was not doing away with the role of the headship by a man. He's talking about being accepted before God for our justification, our sanctification, and our glorification. He's just saying, no matter who you are, Jew or Greek, slave or free, man or woman, there's only one path to salvation. There's only one path to being reconciled to God and becoming a part of his family. We are one in Christ, so we have nothing to prove. This was a radical teaching. I think most of you know this was such a radical teaching in the first century. Slaves were considered to be property. Women were disrespected and treated horribly, and Gentiles were hated by the Jews. But each believer in Christ has value because of who Jesus Christ has made us to be. Sure, we have differences. Sure, we have different gifts, different functions, different abilities, but equal in our value to Christ. And then in verse 29, Paul says, if we belong to Christ, then we are heirs of the promise. Remember back in verse 16, we saw that Paul had said already, Christ is the seed of Abraham. And if you belong to Christ, then you are heirs with Christ. There is still a physical seed of Abraham, isn't there? God still has a plan for the nation of Israel. But those of faith, Jew or Gentile, belong to the spiritual family of God. Following World War II, there were more than 200 French soldiers with amnesia who returned to Paris. And they'd been prisoners in Japanese camps. They were tortured so much. These men had been so damaged, devastated by their imprisonment that they had actually lost the conscious awareness of who they were and what they had done before the war, or even where they lived. They didn't even know where they lived before the war. Most of the soldiers' identities were quickly established from Red Cross records or with the help of fellow prisoners. But after all known efforts were exhausted, there were still 32 men whose existence seemed impossible to trace. Not only were there no records of them, but none of the other soldiers even knew anything about them. Now, the doctors who were treating these 32 men believed that their chance for recovery would be impossible unless they were reconnected with family and friends. Someone proposed publishing photographs of the men on the front pages of the newspapers throughout the country. 
A date and a time and a place of meeting would also be given, hoping anyone would have information about them that they would come forward. And this is exactly what they did. In the French papers, they published the pictures of these men, and they added that the Paris Opera House would open its doors for the potential identification and connection of these men with their loved ones. And on that assigned day, a huge crowd gathered there inside the Opera House to see the veterans. Every seat was taken. People were spilling out into the streets. And then finally, the first of the amnesia victims walked onto the stage in the darkened room. And they slowly turned around under the glare of a gigantic spotlight, giving everyone a full view. Then, as instructed, he and the other 31 soldiers who followed asked this same, same desperate question. Does anybody out there know who I am? Does anybody know who I am. I would argue that this is the same question a lot of people are asking today. So what is the answer? For Christians, the answer is that we are children of God. We've been clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ because we've been adopted into God's family. The old way of living under the law has come and gone, and we have risen to a new life in Jesus Christ. And understanding this transaction that has taken place is the key to living in the freedom that Christ has given us. So rest in that finished work of Christ. Discover for yourself in the scriptures the sufficient grace of God given through faith in Jesus Christ. Give up your own efforts for trying to earn favor with God and recognize that we have become accepted rightful heirs in the family of God. Live up to your identity that you've been given in Christ. That's the message. Live up to your identity that you've been given in Christ. There's no need to sit around and live a defeated life with the curse of the law hanging over your head. God's word inspires us to confidence, not in our ability, not in our ability to live the Christian life, but in God's infinite ability to help us grow in Christ. So follow the ancient way, the ancient path of Abraham, justified by faith and living your life in that same faith, knowing that Jesus Christ died for us in order to secure the promise. So know his love, Christian, and let it guide you as you live for him. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.